0: The city of Chicago brings a few things to mind, no matter if you're from here or not. What's the first thing you think of when you think of Chicago? The lake. great. First, Pizza. The cold winters. Wrigley Field. All that stuff is great, but all of those associations, as well as the bears and the shady politics and the wacky weather, all of that can get a little stale. Come on, Chicago is way more interesting than that. Over the next hour, WBEZ's Curious City is going to give you some new insights into the Chicago area. Oh, wow. Some different facts to ponder.
1: Wait, that, wait, okay, that's important, though. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And some lesser-known Chicago trivia to whip out and blow everyone's minds. (gasps) What? No way! Right here. Oh my gosh! That's unbelievable! (laughs) Stick around and get to know some other sides of Chicago from WBEZ's Curious City. We'll be right back. Alright, so if you were listening to the radio, you would be hearing news right now or music or something. But you're
1: not listening to the radio, in case you didn't know that. So now you get to listen to us banter and watch the world move. Mm. All right, let's get back to these
2: stories. Here they are. Who's the... What is going to be... When Where do I... Why is it... How many... What
0: is the... What? (laughs) Hey, I'm Jennifer Brandel.
3: I'm Sean Ali.
1: And I'm Logan Jaffe. And we're the team behind WBEZ's Curious City.
3: Curious City is a news gathering experiment that's driven by you, our audience. Rather than sitting back and listening to what we think you should know, you tell us what you want to know by submitting questions.
0: You can help us decide which stories we should report by voting on your favorites. We answer these questions and more, often with your help. We focus on things
1: local to Chicago and the region, and we've discovered all kinds of wackadoo stuff not necessarily
0: associated with this place, like Midwestern cactus.
3: And an underground aquifer with seemingly magical water.
0: And the fact that two Chicago neighborhoods had an all out war involving cabbage. Yep, you heard that right. Cabbage war.
3: Now, even if you're a devoted WBEZ listener and a Curious City fan, There's a chance you've missed some of these stories, so we've pulled out some deep cuts from our archives.
1: We'll start this hour-long special with a question that gets right to the heart of what, if anything, makes
0: Chicago unique. Jen, why don't you get us started? All right, so we met Brenda Guzman in a laundromat on Chicago's northwest side. And she was nice enough to let us interrupt her chores to give us this question.
2: What do you think that you can get from Chicago that you can't from other places?
0: In other words... What things can you find only in Chicago? This is one huge question, and one we'd start by taking on the obvious. There are tourism experts who make a living selling Chicago's unique experiences. So how do they lure novelty seekers to the Windy City?
4: I would start with Millennium Park.
0: That's Kathy DeMonico, the vice president of tourism and leisure sales for Choose Chicago.
4: For the most part, we sell our... Incredible shopping district. We tout our pizza and our hot dogs. We are, you know, a city known for our sports. But we started
0: thinking this through. After all, the Magnificent Mile is full of chain stores. And our sports teams play all over the country, so technically you can get them outside Chicago, too. And thanks to the Internet, you can find, order, and ship many of our famous delicacies to anywhere, like deep-dish pizza, a liquor called Malort, and El Ranchero brand tortilla chips. It made us wonder, are strictly Chicago things an endangered species? Sociology professor Sharon Zukin says yes, they are.
4: Over time, there will be less and less local, completely unique experiences and products.
0: Zukin has written books about how forces like globalization and gentrification are threatening what you might call the authentic. She says it's getting harder to find what's singular to any given place. So we really had to scour Chicago's nooks and crannies to answer Brenda's question. But we needed your help. And help us, you did. The
5: tallest building in the world designed by a woman. The
6: spectacular views on Lakeshore Drive. Rainbow
7: cones.
5: Say there's cinnamon rolls.
7: A boat ride into Chinatown. A 75-year-long parking meter contract.
0: We got more than 150 of your suggestions, and we published them online but we thought we could do a little better than answering this question with a spreadsheet. So we went local and hired the unique Chicago musician Nick Gage to write your suggestions into a song called
2: Only in Chicago
0: Here's a taste of it.
2: Only in Chicago
0: So even though Nick Gage made the song in his city, it's on the internet now. So technically, you can find it outside Chicago. It's not unique to here. Well, you get the idea. And if you're troubled by the concept of local identity eroding, you should hear this from Professor Sharon Zukin.
4: People want to believe in the local. They want to believe in the uniqueness of the place they come from. So people will keep saying that things are unique to their locality because they want to be proud of those things.
0: So even if over time, fewer experiences are actually limited to Chicago, Hammond, Zion, or wherever, people will always look for ways to set their hometowns apart. They just might have to work harder and harder to do it.
2: Only in Chicago made the world's first gas And the world's first bear. Man-made menagerie of asphalt, class steel. We've got the highest sales tax in the country and a homicide rate to match. The most expensive parking and the most expensive gas from June way. Wait-
3: That story comes from Jennifer Brandell, And that song, it's from Nick Gage, who sports his own brand of uniqueness. Now, as far as we know, there's only one place to get the only in Chicago song. That's at our website, wbez.org slash Curious City. We've got eight more uniquely Chicago stories to share before the hour is up. Here's another one about a special little Chicago shop that left its mark on an entire industry. It's a shop that's prompted untold numbers of people to lift up their shirts and show off their decisions. For better or worse. Anyway, our own Logan Jaffe has that story.
1: I'm going to talk about art and the city of big shoulders. In particular, art that is literally on many Chicagoan shoulders. I'm talking tattoos. (laughs) The city's got about 200 tattoo shops, which is amazing, considering that for a time during the 1970s, the city was home to just one tattoo shop. Dan Zajek from Highland, Indiana, knew about the place. And he was curious to know how in a city this size, the shop had exactly no competition for almost 10 years. It's not like this one lone tattoo shop started the whole industry. Tattooing had a place in Chicago decades before that. In the 1930s, Chicago's downtown was crawling with tattoo artists.
3: Every theater, every arcade, every burlesque show had a tattooer in it. Up and down State Street for blocks.
1: That's Nick Colella. He's a tattoo artist and also the unofficial historian of Chicago tattooing. The main customers for all this risque business, Nick says or young sailors from around the Great Lakes.
3: There was a griminess to it. If you had a hallway underneath the stairwell, you could put a tattooer there.
1: But in 1963, the state of Illinois wanted to clamp down on tattooing. One way to do this was to raise the legal age to get a tattoo from 18 to 21. That new law...
3: Didn't allow those tattooers to tattoo any sailors anymore. So all the tattooers pretty much left Chicago. Chicago became a ghost town for tattooing.
1: By 1967, there was one artist running a legal tattoo shop, Cliff Ingram Raven.
8: When everybody left, Cliff stayed because he was a Chicago man. At that point, he was the only one in the city.
1: That's Dale Grandy, who became Cliff Raven's apprentice in 1971, and two years later, became part
8: owner. Chicago Tattooing Company, Incorporated, 1973.
1: That's what they called the place, Chicago Tattoo. It's still on West Belmont Avenue.
8: We kind of were in the cracks. We were just there. It was crazy. We would get artists from all over the country stopping in to see Cliff. He would uh, flip on a little carousel slide projector, and it would project tattoos that were done at the shop. Dragons, carps, warriors, that sort of thing. Extremely beautiful
1: beautiful, and successful.
8: (laughs) I wish those times were back again. We would come to work and there would be a line already waiting for us to open the door.
1: Chicago Tattoo's stranglehold on Chicago lasted until about 1976, when the first competition showed up. It was from a guy they knew.
8: That's just it. It was uh, always a, a bad feeling when somebody opened up then.
1: A couple years later, Cliff Raven left Chicago. He opened a new tattoo shop in California. But not before Cliff had left a permanent mark on Chicago. The newer shops, many learned the craft from Chicago tattoos Cliff and Dale.
8: If it wasn't for uh, guys like me, I suppose guys like them wouldn't be around to do business. There's some really, really fine artists out there. Way better than I ever was.
3: Was Curious City's own multimedia producer, Logan Jackie, And I'm Sean Albee. Logan dug up plenty of vintage photos for you They show you everything from Cliff Raven's tattoo designs to the history of tattooing in Chicago. They're all at our website at wbez.org slash Curious City. Our next question also has to do with the city's artistic identity. You may know Chicago has been a center for live theater, improv comedy, and even hip hop. But you may not know, it's also been the world capital of an unsung art form, the art of pinball. Here's producer Mickey Capital.
9: Right over here we got uh, Adam's family, Pinbots,
10: Dr. Dude, Judge
9: Dredd, Simpsons, Pinball. Out of
10: all the pinball games that are here, what percent do you think were made in Chicago? Uh, I would say 99%. I'm answering a question about pinball from Kevin Tramer of Winfield. It makes sense that Kevin asked about pinball, Kevin Schramer has four vintage machines in the middle of his dining room, and he's got enthusiasm to spare.
6: Ready? I, uh, I hit the start button.
10: <laughs> My name's Kevin Schrammer, and uh, I'm a 50-year-old
6: guy who lives out in the suburbs of Chicago. I've played pinball since I was a little kid, and on the machines that always had the address... Basically, of where they were making these machines, and they were all Chicago, Chicago. And it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. So I guess since over the years, I've wondered, why was the Chicago area home to
10: all the major pinball manufacturers during the heyday of pinball? It turns out Kevin's right. If you Google virtually any pinball company, Williams, Gottlieb, Bally, they were all based right here in the Chicago region, and they made the machines here too. And they made millions and millions of dollars in cold, hard change. But why Chicago? Kevin and I learned the story from industry experts. We'll hear from some of them, and I'll fill in some details. This guy will get us started. Can you just introduce yourself? Roger Sharp. Everyone who I talk to in the pinball industry tells me how important Roger Sharp is, including Roger Sharp. You're something of a pinball icon would you accept that title sure
6: i think that uh, the impact that i've had on pinball has been somewhat uh, remarkable at one point i was considered to be if not the best player in the world one of the best players in the world i wrote a book on pinball machines which i think is still revered for being uh, you know one of the best histories of the industry
10: anyway sharp can tell a quick story of pinball in chicago First, the industry itself started almost a century ago
6: with... The depression, late 20s, early 30s, people being out of work, looking for entertainment for a penny, and suddenly there were some people creating an industry, literally with you know little pieces of wood.
10: Now, these were simple machines, no buzzers, no lights, not even flippers, but they were fun enough to bring in the pennies, and an industry started to form. Chicago quickly became Pinball's center of gravity. It was a convenient city for three key reasons. Materials, labor, and distribution. First, you had to make the machines out of something. And in Chicago, you had...
6: Access to raw materials. Lumber, wiring, and everything else from the immediate vicinity. Metal parts. Gary, Indiana was a steel mill town. You know, All you had to do was drive by Gary to smell it.
10: Hiring workers was easy in Chicago.
6: Labor force, you know, a very strong immigrant population.
10: And then, once you finished the machines, distribution was simple. From Chicago, you could get anywhere in the world. You had the railroads, you had... Shipping lines.
6: You're looking at access out as a manufacturer to the rest of the world.
10: Soon enough, the industry was so established here that it didn't matter who you were. If you wanted to make it in pinball, you had to move to Chicago. Take Harry Williams, for example.
6: Uh, Harry Williams was located on the West Coast, and Harry is really kind of seen as the Thomas Edison of pinball. He uh, introduced sound, introduced what uh, we we'll call it electricity.
10: Harry Williams created some of the best early pinball machines, but he couldn't really make it big in California.
6: I think that uh, Harry realized that if he was gonna make a go of it in this industry, he needed to be where the industry was.
10: So, in the mid-1930s, Harry Williams set up shop in Chicago, which made better use of his talent. Eventually, William's name would grace pinball machines around the world. So that's why pinball was founded here. But our original question from Kevin Schramer was deeper than that.
6: Why was the Chicago area home to all the major pinball
10: manufacturers during the heyday of pinball? Chicago in the pinball industry's heyday. You can take heyday to be in the 60s and 70s this period of recreational dominance when the pinball machine, this clunky mechanical box designed to take people's pocket change, blossomed into a form of high
11: art. Well, maybe not so high art. Maybe like one step up from carnival art. This is Greg Ferris, a pinball artist. But no, I think it's worthy. It's part of the 20th century pop art. And this pop art was made almost exclusively in the Chicago area, and you can kind of tell. When I started at Bally, their headquarters was on the river right across from Riverview. It was an amusement park, and a lot of the manufacturers were right within a three-mile radius of that area there. You know, that whole amusement park aesthetic seemed to influence pinball and pinball designers and pinball artists. So there's kind of that garish quality to pinball art the, you know, bright colors, kind of influenced by Riverview in its heyday. Pinball art is Chicago art. And here's an example from one of Greg Ferris's machines. In 1979, when I did work on the Harlem Globetrotters, that was our worst winter here ever. You know, I was skiing on my street at home uh, because we had so much snow on the ground. So when I worked on the Globetrotters, I had a globe on the back glass, and I took a big dab of white paint and just put it right at the you know, tip of Lake Michigan there, right in where Chicago is. In other words, one of Chicago's most notorious winters made a cameo appearance on a pinball
10: machine shipped around the world. In the late 90s, pinball hit a rough period. And since 2000, only one company has continued to regularly release new pinball machines. That's Stern Pinball, located in Melrose Park, a western suburb. Are
2: you from Chicago? Yeah,
6: I live in the suburbs off of okay. Winfield.
10: Kevin Schrammer and I visit Gary Stern, the company's CEO.
8: What was the first table that you uh, worked on? Oh, God. <laughs> I started in the stockroom when I was 16, so it'll be 53 years ago. So, I've, I've been around all kinds of pinball machines, so I, couldn't, I don't know the first one.
10: Gary Stern helps us understand why the pinball industry is still around Chicago, even if it's no longer in its heyday. Stern gives us plenty of details.
8: We source almost all of our parts locally.
10: The cabinets, the circuit boards, and even the little plastic posts are all from the area. But Kevin and I learned a bigger point. The people are still here.
8: We're all here because we're all, we were all here.
10: But why are they still here? It's not that pinball is changing the world. There's nothing serious about a pinball.
8: It's just—it's a ball and bat game. You know, it's not telling any great moral story. It's just fun.
10: But it's not just fun that keeps Chicago pinball going. Every old machine in the corner of a dive bar, and every new machine that comes out, is a point of local pride.
3: That story was produced by Mickey Capper. If he has you geeked about pinball history, you can hear him tell how a fearless pinball wizard helped transform the game from a gambling device to a legit pastime. He told it for our friends at the 99% Invisible podcast. You can find the link at our website, wbez.org slash Curious City. We're going to be back in a moment with more of the Curious City What Makes Chicago Special Special. Stay tuned.
0: Hey, podcast listener, again, this is where we would have a minute break. Take a moment, take in the
1: scenery around you, look out the window, look at the world, pet your cat, pet your
0: dog, scratch that itch. We're coming right back. Welcome back to an hour long special of WBEZ's Curious City. It's our series where you ask questions about Chicago and the region, and we answer them together. I'm senior producer Jennifer Brandel. So Chicago is known for its tall buildings, and maybe that's how we compensate for the area's incredibly flat terrain. We don't have anything close to resembling a mountain, and there aren't even any serious hills. But there is a bit of elevation somewhere, right? Well, that's what Elizabeth Silk was wondering. She asked us where to find Chicago's highest natural point.
4: We have a park near us, Warren Park, that has a hill that some people call Mount Warren. You know, we were just joking about it one day, and I thought, well, maybe this is the highest point in Chicago.
0: That was a solid guess, Elizabeth, but you were off. Molly Adams from WBEZ sister station Vocalo braved the
5: not-so-thin air to find Chicago's summit. Elizabeth Silk and I established one rule. Any high point in the city would have to be natural. No structures like the Willis Tower. No hill that's really a landfill. So how do you find a peak on a prairie? I start with geology, and I find the recipe for our flatness. 14,000 years ago, thereabouts, the city and most of Northwest Indiana was covered by the ancient Lake Chicago and retreating glaciers. What we're left with for hills are moraines of glacial debris. I find topographic maps from the United States Geologic Survey, and I look for the moraine edges that run along what are now blocks in the 90s in Beverly, just north of the Blue Island Ridge. I identify a few peaks in the area and realize I need a Sherpa. So I call my friend Matty Ryan. He grew up in Beverly and is a natural tour guide. You're going to hear the places we visited in order from lowest to highest. One stop is at the Dan Ryan Woods at 87th and Wester to find a stone marking a lookout point. Maddie always thought that this was the highest point in Chicago. There's a hilltop to look down and a cool distant view of the loop. To the east, there's this dubious marker and a grove of sycamores.
7: This has been here since what? What does that say? Tw- 1922. Lookout point uses a signal station on main highway of Indian travel marked by the DeWalt... Metchlin Chapter?
5: Daughters of the American Revolution. What
7: a badass group name. There must have been some kind of, like, remaining Native Americans that could have been like, yeah, we did use this, right? I don't think they just put a rock here. Be like, probably.
2: <laughs> well,
5: considering our history with Native Americans.
7: <laughs> you know, if I was an Indian, I'd probably look out right here.
5: Nice view and shady history aside, it turns out this point is only at 660 feet above sea level. So while this hill does offer the highest natural viewpoint it is technically not the highest point. And I know that from my maps. A warning for sticklers. Topographic maps measure in increments of 10 feet. Without an altimeter, it's hard to be more precise. So when the maps say the tallest contours in Chicago top out at 670, that means the highest point is between 670 and 679. And there are several hills in that range. We can drive right over one of them. Where, where are we driving right now, Maddie?
7: We're driving south on Longwood Drive. We're passing St. Barnabas Grammar School right now. Yeah, this is the old coastline, basically, of the glacial glacial lake that used to be Lake Chicago.
5: Levitt and uh, 105? Okay, okay, so so this is it. I think that we just went over it.
7: Oh, wow. You can feel it. You can really feel it.
5: Later, we walk around another point that's in the 670-foot range. We want to see if an actual highest point can offer a better view than a residential street. So I used to get my haircut when
7: I was a little kid.
5: At 92nd and Western, it's not a pretty view. There's no park, there's a Menards. But there is a unique feature.
7: We're like smack dab in the middle of the hill right now.
5: So the highest point in Chicago... It's
7: like it's a Rainbow Cone.
5: <laughs> yes, Rainbow Cone, the Beverly Institution. Chocolate ice cream, then strawberry, then Palmer House, then pistachio, then orange sherbet piled on a cake cone.
7: See watch that. It's like a flat spade. Okay. It takes a long it takes a while to learn how to make a cone like that, Molly.
5: Wow, thank you.
7: Thanks so much.
5: Thank you. Okay, well I guess I'm gonna have to put this microphone down at this point. It's a magical treat for a magical spot. It's just that there's not a great view. So grab your cone and head back to 87th Street to get the full top of Chicago experience.
1: That was Vocalo's Molly Adams. And if you're Jones in for a rainbow cone, just know they're open seasonally. I'm Logan Jaffe from Curious City, and you're listening to our You Probably Didn't Know That About Chicago special. One thing Chicago has a reputation for is diversity. The city's pretty much evenly split between white, African American, and Hispanic residents, with new immigrants changing the mix all the time. But Chicago has some serious biodiversity, too. The parks and forest preserves have a good number of animals and lots of plants. Aaron Dernbaugh is the director of sustainability at Loyola University, and he asked Curious City this question.
11: What part of the city has the most biodiversity, so the most diversity of plants, the animals, and bird species?
0: Jennifer Brandel and I laced up our hiking boots to find out. So here's the short answer.
11: The honest answer is that you can't be sure.
0: That's Greg Spireus. He's a botanist and plant ecologist with the Illinois Natural History Survey.
11: Nobody has counted every single plant and animal in the Chicago area and said, this area here has this many species of all these different types. For sure.
0: So we can't be sure. But Greg tells us how to make an educated guess. Look for a large piece of land with a lot of habitat variety. So based on size and variety,
1: we settle on a park on the southeast side of Chicago called Powderhorn Prairie and Marsh.
7: So we're sitting in the Chicago Lake Plain, which is sort of a flattened area that was formerly the the lake bed of Lake Michigan.
1: This guy is Chip O'Leary, a resource ecologist with the Forest Preserve District of Cook County.
7: And why we're here is this site really has tremendous biodiversity.
0: What's funny is that this area doesn't seem promising. Trains roll by, there are smokestacks on the horizon. It's very industrial. But Chip says the surrounding industry is actually one of the reasons why this area became a park in the first place.
7: It had uh, industry happening, but industry would buy big tracts of land, and they didn't develop all those tracts.
0: So
1: this part of Chicago ended up being protected in a way because it was owned but not used.
0: Powderhorn Prairie is big, around 130 acres. But does it have that habitat variety that Greg Spireas told us about? It turns out the answer is yes, thanks to the magic of dune and swale topography here by Lake Michigan.
7: So as as the waves came in, they would push up a little bit of sand, and create this long, linear stretch of sand. And it would create these dunes. They're only about three to five feet high. In
1: the valley of the dunes, there's swampy wetland habitat that's called swale. On top of the dunes, there's a dry prairie habitat. This rare combination of environments makes for tons of biodiversity. Depending on the season, there's between 40 and 100 bird species at Powderhorn and about 200 plant species.
7: Lowland hog peanut. Common water horehound, white snake root.
1: There's also prickly pear cactus, if you can believe it.
7: In addition to cactus, there are a few other things you might not expect out here, but there's a few lizards that really only survive in these small sand pockets throughout this part of the Midwest.
0: Lizards? Cactus? Chicago? Who'd have thought? Or even better, what does Aaron Dernbaugh think? Remember, he got us strapping on our boots to find out about biodiversity in the first place.
11: You know, we're not some other generic place in the world, we are Chicago. We're this land of prairies and wetlands and Lake Michigan, and it's also just as much a part of who we are as the stockyards, as the city of big shoulders.
0: That's a pretty big idea. Biodiversity as a point of civic pride. Just like Chicago skyscrapers, it's pizza, it's neighborhoods. And
1: it's one more reason to get outside and look around. Just be careful not to step on a cactus.
3: That story was reported by Jennifer Brandell and Logan Jaffe. So we just tromped around Chicago's most biodiverse area and found a cactus surprise. The surprise was cactus. Now let's consider another plant, one that might be the very plant that the city is named after. Well, one of our listeners asked a question about this plant that is central to Chicago's identity, and reporter Chelsea Moy was happy to help him out.
12: Chicago is named after a wild and smelly onion. Maybe that doesn't surprise you. But have you tried it? Have you seen it? More than 300 years ago, the wild onion grew abundantly along the mouth of the Chicago River. Today, it's harder to find. Cement sidewalks and paved roads line the river where they once grew. Enter Doug Morris of Hinsdale, Who asked us this question?
11: I was curious to know if the uh, stinky onion Chicago is named after uh, still exists and where to find it.
12: Okay, our mission is clear. We need to find this wild onion and smell it. We enlist the help of Doug Tarrin. He's curator of biology at the Peggy Noterbart Nature Museum. We all meet at a forest preserve in Northbrook. So there's Doug, the questioner, and there's Doug, the biologist. Okay, well, let's go look for some onions. The thing to know right here is that scientists and historians debate exactly which plant is the Chicago onion. So to answer the question, we look for all three contenders. We walk for only a minute.
2: Got nodding wild onion already here. (laughs) A few steps more. This is the third species of onion that we were talking about, the field garlic. And
12: just a little farther.
2: This looks like the kind of spot that I would really expect it. Wait for it. No, that's something else. Oh no, it is not something else. I am completely a big liar here. This is wild leek. No way! Right here. We found all three in 30 minutes. That's pretty amazing.
12: We find three kinds of wild onions. And that's important. Here's biologist Doug Terran.
2: There are a bunch of species of onions that live in the Chicago area. Three of them are particularly common. And it's possible that the name refers to any of those three species. But no one really knows. Different people have their theories about which one it is, but there's really no smoking gun that this is definitely the one that the, the name Chicago refers to.
12: But most of my sources think it's the wild leek, or what is called the ranch. Okay, so we answer the first part of the question. The Chicago Stinky Onion is probably the ramp. And yes, it still grows in the region. But Doug Morris wants to know if it actually stinks. He makes a field observation.
11: it doesn't stink. I mean, it just smells Smells like a fresh onion.
12: And here's Doug Terran from the Nature Museum.
2: Um, I... I think the reason that people uh, have associated it with stinkiness is because the word is said to be associated with skunks. And I think that the uh, stinkiness of skunk musk is really overstated. I mean, if you're really on top of it and it's really given a good spray and it's very strong, it's unpleasant. But if you smell skunk musk more dis- distantly, I-, I actually find it kind of pleasant.
12: Well, smells aside, ramps can be tasty. To learn more, I visit Chef John Dubois at the Green Zebra Restaurant. Dubois doesn't have any ramps on hand. They're out of season right now. But he doesn't mind talking about them.
7: Come springtime, because, you know, winter in Chicago lasts forever. And so ramps are like that light at the end of the tunnel that, you know, if you can make it that far, you know everything's going to be all right.
12: Others agree, because the ramp, come to find out, is a culinary trend.
7: Twelve years ago, it was like a fringe ingredient. Maybe one or two restaurants in Chicago were using them. So now, you go to any restaurant in Chicago, come the middle of March, early April, and there's ramp this and ramp that. There's you know, ramp stuffed chicken, ramp salads, grilled ramps, ramp and pasta.
12: All this talk about cooking and ramps relates to Doug Morris's question. So where do Chicago chefs get their wild bulbs?
9: It's kind of hard to tell because everyone's very guarded about their spots and stuff, so you can't really tell where they're coming from or where they're being sourced from.
12: This is Dave Odd. He's the forager who supplies green zebra with ramps. And while he can't say for sure where other foragers get them, he travels about 60 miles outside of Chicago to pick.
9: We saw this property that had ramps all over it, and we just kind of went and rang the doorbell of the person that lived there. It was this nice little old lady named Charlotte. And uh, we said, hey, come pick the ramps that are growing on your property. And she said, what are, what are ramps? And I, I explained it to her. And I'm like, it's these wild onions that grow all over your land. And she's like, oh, I always wondered why the lawn smells funny when we mowed it.
12: Now, it depends on the weather. But ramps are not typically in short supply.
9: When I go to the, the private land, then I'm allowed to go on to pick the ramps. I'm very careful, like the forest floor is literally carpeted with ramps, like you wind up accidentally stepping on more than you actually harvest, but I never just like mow through a whole area and just clear it out completely of ramps. Um, And that's unfortunately what I see a lot of the other collectors doing.
12: While ramps may be easy to find, they're hard to get. It's illegal to pick anything from the forest preserves. So how do you harvest them? Again. Dave
9: Odd. I would recommend making friends with somebody who has a lot of property with ramps on it. It's really the only way to legally harvest ramps in the Chicagoland area.
12: Okay, sure, you can find ramps in some artisan grocery stores in the spring. But as far as harvesting goes, I wonder if this is the best option. So I decide to get a second opinion, and I get it from Bill Berger. He's curator emeritus of botany at the Field Museum.
11: The last thing we need to do is, is ask a couple of million people to go out in the woods and and add to their uh, you know culinary delight. Obviously, if you pull them up to make uh, make a salad out of them, then uh, there won't be any flowers or fruits later on, and that's a good way to send things bye bye.
12: Well, there's some food for thought. Doug Morris wanted to know where Chicago stinky onion is, and we found it's prevalent in forest preserves and other areas. But now we're left with this question. To eat or not to eat? If you buy Bill Berger's argument, you'll leave the ramps alone. But if you're tempted, I've posted some recipes for you at wbez.org slash Curious City.
2: The world is just a
3: That story came from reporter Chelsea Moy. We'll be back in just a minute with more curious stories about our curious
9: city.
0: Hey, you're listening to the podcast. This is the last fake break of the hour. Fake
1: break. Psych. Major fake break.
0: <laughs> All right, let's get back to it. Welcome back to WBEZ's Curious City special about what makes Chicago weird and wonderful and special. Let's pick up where our onion story left off and continue our accidental theme of vegetables. We got a question related to one vegetable that used to be commonly grown in area farms, the humble cabbage. But this story is not about growing cabbages. It's about throwing them. Here's a question about Chicago's most political food fight. My name is Laura Jones Magnan and my question for Curious City is What was behind the so called Cabbage War in West Ridge and Rogers Park? I would like to know more because, you know, Cabbage War. To answer Laura's question, we asked reporter Dan Weissman to bring this bizarre historical moment back to life.
13: Well, Laura, the roots of the Cabbage War go back to the 1850s, when Northwestern University in Evanston instituted a four-mile radius zone that banned the sale of alcohol. The dry zone extended to what became the village of Rogers Park. Rogers Park had successful businessmen who commuted outside of the dry zone limit, and they could easily grab booze on the way home. But it was a different story in the area west of Rogers Park, West Ridge. Westridgers did not commute so much. They were mostly farmers. Farmers who wanted a drink after a long day's work. Three of Westridge's four taverns operated in the shadow of Northwestern's ban. So, in 1890, Westridge incorporated as its own village, a village that could have as many taverns as it pleased. Westridgers felt Rogers Parkers, who had voted themselves dry amplified a threat to their lifestyle and businesses. And they were always putting on airs.
2: Spoiled.
1: Pretentious. Silk stockings.
13: For their part, the Rogers Parkers had plenty to say about West Richers.
4: What they wouldn't do for another drink. Philistines. Farmers. Farmers. Cabbage heads.
13: Animosity persisted even after 1893 when the city of Chicago annexed both areas and Things got really heated in 1895. That's when Rogers Parkers proposed a park along Lake Michigan that would run north from Devon Avenue to Chicago's border with Evanston.
4: A day at the lake would brighten a man's spirit.
13: And taxes on West Ridgers would help fund it.
3: Those Rogers Park
4: thieves want to steal our
3: taxes to build a lakeside garden on their side? No way!
13: West Ridgers would not have it. The West Ridgers proposed the Ridge Avenue Park District. It would use tax money to create many parks on both sides of Ridge Avenue, not just near the lake. A vote was scheduled for April 14, 1896, to decide which park district would be created. Late one night, the brutal political campaign reached its climax. West Ridgers marched right into Rogers Park to confront a Rogers Park leader right at his home the West had taken the term Cabbage Head as a badge of pride so they arrived with a cart decorated proudly with heads of cabbages on sticks. A mob of Rogers Parkers pelted the West with bricks. Ow! That
10: hurt!
13: By the end of the night, Sheridan Road was littered with stovepipe hats and smashed cabbages. But the vote over park district funding went on, and when the votes were tallied, the cabbage heads were victorious. The new Ridge Avenue Park District would oversee the creation of parks in both Westridge and Rogers Park, and, irony of ironies, just a year later, the Rogers Parkers also got their Lakefront Park District. So today, there's plenty of park space for modern-day cabbage heads and silk stockings alike.
1: Reporting for that story came from Simran Kosla, with voicing by Dan Weissman. I'm multimedia producer Logan Jaffe, here with another story about Chicago's natural resources— this one about a very peculiar watering hole. It starts with a question we got from two separate listeners about a strange sight they witnessed while driving around town. I'm talking about crowds of people lined up at a small, hand-pumped water well in a Cook County Forest Preserve. This water well is just southeast of O'Hare Airport, and it's become so popular, famous even, that people come from all over the region just to drink from it. And some people even call it Chicago's Fountain of Youth. I think um, Fountains of Youth are a little bit of an urban legend, fable, myth. That's one of our two question askers. My name is Leslie Treese. And here's the other one.
13: My name is Larry Powers. And, and
1: I'll let them take it from here. I drive down... You know, I drive by... Irving Park Road.
13: Forest Preserve on Irving Park Road.
1: On a weekly basis. And you always see lines of people... People filling up their water bottles or their
13: jug. In the middle of the forest preserve. What's the deal? I'm curious to know why. There's got to be some special secret.
1: Obviously a secret that needs to be spilled. So, we meet Leslie and Larry at the Schiller Woods Forest Preserve to see the pump and the lines of people for ourselves. But we also get an official explanation from this guy.
6: My name is Len Dufkas. I'm a maintenance supervisor with the Forest, Missouri, District of Cook County.
1: He's been watching the Schiller Woods phenomena for
6: years. I've been by here at midnight, and people are out here pumping water at midnight. So, why? It's the age-old question. This comes from an underground aquifer that's prevalent throughout the whole area here. It's just good groundwater.
1: That's it. The state of Illinois even tested the water to see what's in it. And all they found is the water is low in iron. So in theory, this well water shouldn't be all that special. But in practice, people like how it tastes way different than chlorinated city water. And they give other theories too. I'm
2: picking up this water because for me that's our medicine or something but it's good for cooking, for drinking, for coffee, for everything. <laughs> I definitely feel that it is better,
13: healthier for you, for personal drinking and for making kombucha at home. Uh, it doesn't have the additives or the chemicals, the fluoride, the
2: chlorine, or the pharmaceuticals that the wonderful city of Chicago contains.
1: Leslie and Larry, our question askers, couldn't leave without a taste for themselves.
2: Here's
13: looking at you.
4: Cheers. Cheers.
1: The verdict? It tasted clean and not minerally at all.
13: But I'm going to say that on a scale of 1 to 10... This water is probably uh, nine. I'm thinking it would really make nice ice cubes, and then I could float the ice cubes in an adult beverage of my choice. I'm coming back.
3: That story came from Logan Jaffe. If you want in on the Chicago legend she talked about, that water well is on Irving Park Road, about a half mile west of Cumberland. If you'd rather skip the crowds, you can check out the scene in a video that we put together. That's at wbez.org slash Curious City. So just a little ways up the road from Schiller Woods, there's another Chicago mystery that has a lot of people scratching their heads. People ask us about it all the time, and there's a chance you've wondered about it, even if you've only passed through Chicago. It has to do with O'Hare International Airport, which is the area's flagship airport and one of the nation's busiest. Here's the question from the guy who asked it. My name is Tim Trumner. I'm 30 years old. I'm a teacher and a writer. My sort of lifelong concern with where is Terminal 4 at O'Hare? I always thought it was kind of strange that the numbering goes from 1, 2, 3, and then 5. So I wondered why there's not a Terminal 4, or if there is, if it's hidden somewhere. For some answers, we got some help from WBEZ's Yolanda Perdomo. We sent her to O'Hare, and she found that the missing Terminal mystery was in plain sight.
4: I'm at O'Hare not far from where people take the train in and out of the airport and the first thing you see are signs and they're not hard to miss. They're labeled one, two, three, and five. Confusing? Maybe. Interesting? For sure. And Tim's not the only person to think about O'Hare's missing number. I asked brothers Norman and Leo Lewis. They're from Michigan City, Indiana.
11: No, I don't think it's confusing because you just you can only go to what is showing is there.
4: Yeah, but if you, if you see one, two, three, and five, who is the
11: number four? No, because if it's only two, three, and five, that's all there that is, two, three, and five. That tells you that there is no number four, right?
4: <laughs> I asked Karen Pride about the missing Terminal 4. She does media relations for the Chicago Department of Aviation. Pride says Terminal 4 did exist once upon a time. It was a temporary international terminal here uh, from about 1985 to 1993. Here's the short story. Just before 1985, O'Hare had three terminals. But United wanted more space and the airport was taking on more international travel. So the international terminal, number one, became United's hub. Terminals two and three stayed domestic. Terminal four was assigned for international flights. I got all this history from David Woodcock. He's worked at O'Hare for 50 years, and he even worked at Terminal 4 as the station manager for Scandinavian Airlines.
6: But Why don't we take the main floor of the parking garage, which is exactly what it was, uh, why don't we take that main floor, convert it into a temporary
11: international building?
4: And voila, or not so much voila, Woodcock says foreign airline companies found the new operating area too small, and they had already started planning Terminal 5, a new improved international terminal. That new Terminal 5 opened in 1993.
6: Everybody was very excited about Terminal 5. I remember walking through Terminal 5 the night before we opened it and and said, wow, this is great, this is terrific. It was worth all of the effort.
4: Woodcock says there was fanfare for the new terminal, but Terminal 4... It was closed, quietly. So the answer to why there's no Terminal 4 at O'Hare? It was temporary in the first place, and a victim of the march of progress to Terminal 5. But that leads to another question. What about the numbers? O'Hare still had terminals one, two, and three. Why didn't they just call the newest terminal, Terminal 4? Again, here's Karen Pride. That would have been more confusing getting rid of five and just having one, two, three, four, that would have been more confusing? Yeah. I think so. Because people ha- had become accustomed to going over to this location and calling that Terminal 4. It didn't exist anymore. And here's the point from David Woodcock. Travelers don't need the number four. They get a ticket and head to whatever terminal they need to go to. And again, changing stuff would just cost more money.
6: You know what? People are familiar now, to be honest with you.
4: you. You talked about the cost of changing the signage.
6: Well, that's, that's, one, that's one aspect, but, you know, why do it? It, it? It's People know it now. People, everybody knows it. Terminal 5 is the international terminal. I even have a jacket that says Terminal 5, International Terminal uh, at home.
4: You don't have a number 4.
6: No, no, I'd have to change jackets, wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs>
4: okay, this is what we know. There is no Terminal 4 because that area was originally a parking lot. It was supposed to be a stopgap space until the bigger and better Terminal 5 was in place. It's like the number four is a ghost at O'Hare, but it's not completely gone. This lady thinks she saw it.
2: Are you asking about Terminal 4? Yeah.
4: I think you go through those elevators over there, right? I thought I I saw something about Terminal 4. I could be wrong. It's no wonder that Sarah Crowley of Chicago could be confused. There are signs with the number four, but therefore elevator center four. But in a bit of irony, this bank of elevators is close to a bus and shuttle center that is located right on the site of the old airport Terminal 4. I was able to solve the mystery for Tim and happy to tell him about it. After all, he did say it was his, quote, lifelong concern.
13: Oh, wow. I've basically been in Terminal 4. I just was not aware of it. Huh. I kind of figured it would be sort of tucked away somewhere or would have been you know, just completely
3: demolished. I was not expecting it to have been a parking garage, briefly been an airport terminal, and then turned back into a parking garage.
4: Honestly, it wasn't the answer I was expecting, but I like that there's a big number four at O'Hare, again, at a bank of elevators, maybe like a little joke about the old Terminal 4. And some O'Hare workers I ran into thought the question about the number four was funny too. One of them said, they keep everyone puzzled around here keeps Chicago as interesting as it is.
1: That story was reported by Yolanda Perdomo. And that O'Hare worker she spoke with definitely has a point. I mean, if you all weren't puzzled about Chicago, Curious City wouldn't exist.
3: And after learning about parks and pinball and where to find the city's highest hill and the most magical water and the most biodiverse spot, we hope you're still curious enough about the Chicago area that you're going to send us your question to.
0: That's because we rely on your questions to make these stories. So do us a solid and send us your questions about Chicago, the region, and its people. Ask us at wbez.org slash Curious City.
1: All right, time to get going. We hope this hour-long Curious City special about what makes Chicago so special has you fully equipped with fun facts to wow the crowd at any party.
3: Or to defend your choice of calling Chicago home to anyone who dares question you.
0: Big thanks to Curious City intern Ellen Mayer for production help on the special, and same goes for Iris Lynn. We are a small but mighty team, including founder and senior producer Jennifer Brandell, That's me.
3: Editor Sean Ali. That's me.
0: And multimedia producer Logan Jaffe. That's me. Curious City is produced by WBEZ and Air with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism.
3: Mmm, that's good radio.